of the Dark Academicals, the podcast where we delve into the mythos of dark academia one book at a time. I'm Sarah Purnell. And I'm Sophie Waters. This week we're looking at The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. F. Scott Fitzgerald saw his third novel, The Great Gatsby, published in the spring of 1925. Gatsby, often coined as one of the great American novels, follows outsider Nick Carraway through a short slice of time during the Jazz Age in a bright electric suburb of New York State called West Egg. Through Nick's eyes, we uncover the mystery surrounding his manor-dwelling neighbour, Jay Gatsby, and his obsession with Nick's cousin, Daisy, in an intoxicating rush of parties, play-acting and social posturing. If Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights is a brutal, remote kind of romance, then Fitzgerald's Gatsby is no less violent for all its silk and champagne. A harrowing study of human behaviour, it makes you wonder at the lengths men might go to when given the green light. Some of you might be wondering why we've chosen The Great Gatsby as a dark academia title, because for all intents and purposes it is not dark academia. However, It's what we like to coin dark academia adjacent. Yeah, so these are basically books that kind of sit alongside dark academia novels. They might share themes, aesthetics, parts of an aesthetic, um, atmosphere, events, situations, but it's not dark academia. And yet there are still those connecting threads and those parallels and also sharp contrasts that we think make really interesting comparisons between these novels. Yeah, I think you'll definitely understand it better once we start like holding it against our criteria of what does and doesn't make a dark academia novel. It does start to make more sense when you run oh, through. Um, and I think the fact that it fe- does feature in The Secret History, which is our seminal text, yeah. I think makes it worthy of like, kind of digging into some of the influences mm-hmm. that inform the writing and characters of the secret history. Welcome to the Se- Secret History Fan Club. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's Richard's favourite novel, isn't it? Yeah. And he, he reads it during <laughs> the secret history. But on the surface, The Great Gatsby is a tragedy. It's a tragic novel. It's a jazz age novel. It's the great American novel. It's a literary text. I did lots of googling and research to see like how this novel is coined because it's such a famous text that it is just the great gatsby isn't it it doesn't yeah necessarily naturally fall into a genre i think but- it's definitely one of those books that's kind of like a foundation or a building block for a lot of other genres that came after it yeah absolutely it's another seminal text really isn't it yeah because i know it's not one that's studied over here very often but I think it's pretty much studied in every American high school isn't it yeah I think it's banned though or it was banned in certain schooling institutions I read when I was doing the old Google and if Google says it it must be true (laughs) obviously that's interesting (laughs) not surprising but interesting because oh no that's that's a spoiler for a tidbit I've got later Uh not gonna not gonna say that one (laughs) So, I guess we should uh, get into the nitty-gritty. Yeah. And start comparing The Great Gatsby to our tenets of dark academia and see see how it falls. What makes The Great Gatsby a dark academia title? And our... Or a dark academia adjacent title. True. The first on our list is a higher education setting, or often on campus, 
um, an elite or exclusive in some kind of way. And it's definitely not that. Yeah, quite clearly <laughs> not. But I think there is a lot of emphasis on um, kind of these elitist kind of establishments. So there's a massive vein throughout the whole book of Gatsby being an Oxford man. And like, this yeah. is really important. Um, uh, Nick and Tom know each other from Yale. And it seems to be um, one of the key things to these men's successes is that they went to appropriately elite colleges as well. Yeah, and also it's one of the things that right at the end of the novel when um, Gatsby's dad is reading the letter and all of these things that Gatsby wrote down as a teenager or a young man, all of the things that he needs to do to be successful so many of them tie back to academia yeah there's um read read an improving book every week i think one of them was um lots of lots of little things like that that kind of form that structure of academia and that elite academia kind of rising you above yeah and i think also i think the oxford um mention is important because oxford's almost like held aloft in such a way it's almost above any any other establishment it's like how could someone like gatsby who i think they can almost like smell that he's not he's not actually who he says he is do you know what i mean like he can they can they they can they can see that something's not as it seems with him but they cannot figure it out and i think as well there's that sense like how how could he possibly have gone to Oxford? It's like, if he'd have chosen somewhere else, even if, I don't know how old some of the American um, colleges are, but maybe even if he'd have chosen old. Harvard, <laughs> like, it yeah. wouldn't have had the same... Or Princeton, or one of the other Ivy Leagues. Yeah. But especially as well, choosing an English school. Yeah. In 1920, it's not a case of, you know... I was going to say a quick flight, but I mean, it's still a nine hour flight, but, <laughs> but you can't just hop across the Atlantic, can you? And study no. abroad as easily in the 1920s, especially when there's just been a war. No, that's true. It was a very different kind of situation there. I think he could also hide in that though, because it would be harder to trace. Oh yeah, true. Couldn't prove it or disprove it really. Yeah. I think a lot of Gatsby hinges on that. Yes. <laughs> that you can't you can't prove his lying. You can't discredit him because he really gives a straight answer. Yeah. Especially when talking about how he makes his money. How oh, yes. <laughs> I mean even down to his name, like it's not wrong. Like he's not lying about his name. It's just not, not his quite name. name. <laughs> <laughs> I'd actually forgotten that until I reread it. Jimmy Gatz. Yeah. Because it's not too far off, but it's a very, very different name. Yeah. And it gives you a different image, doesn't it? It does. When it comes to old Gothic architecture, there's definitely not any of that. (laughs) No. I mean, because the novel's set around New York City, Long Island, and I don't think we actually leave I think we leave New York at all. No. But the and the architecture's very grand. It is very grand, yeah. 
I'm thinking obviously Art Deco. Mm. It's all probably a lot of it's going to be newer built, yeah. but it's in such a way that a lot of it probably does take reference point from Gothic and Italian. Possibly, I'm not sure. I'm not <laughs> not up on my uh, Art Deco. No, it's basically it's new and dripping in money. Yes. The main kind of old buildings in New York that are like faux gothic because it's not modern New York isn't old enough to be gothic. Um, There's a massive church on Fifth Avenue and it's like a stone's throw from the massive glass apple store and it looks really odd (laughs) in the middle of Fifth Avenue. I think Gatsby's Manor is... um interesting in itself though i think it has some of those gothic elements in the way that it becomes a character in its own own right and mm-hmm. how it's very much a living breathing creature when it's full of people all its lights are on and then suddenly it's like a hollow shell yeah. it's very indicative of gatsby's mentality i think yeah definitely and i think some of the some of the elements of the personality that gatsby puts on is very old academia actually quite like english kind of victorian edwardian english like old sport um you know his preoccupation with his car that's a very kind of gentrified english thing isn't it it is and all his books are real (laughs) there's that fellow in the in his in his library just like like uh pissed as a fart taking books off the shelf and being surprised that there's actual pages <laughs> in them. I reckon Gatsby probably has read quite a lot of them because it's not like he actually turns up to his own parties. That's true. He just hides. <laughs> <laughs> Another element of um, dark academia is a preoccupation with classical studies, whether that's Latin, Greek, English literature, philosophy, something like that. And we don't have that in a clear, linear presence in the novel but i think thematically there are huge links to the ancient greeks because one of the main threads running through this i think is the idea of fate and destiny and doom (laughs) almost yes which is very greek and you know gatsby essentially brings about his own downfall he does in a very greek way i can't think what is that hubris? That's hubris. Not hubris. It is hubris. Yeah. Hello, editing Sarah here. We definitely meant Hamasha, not hubris. Whoopsie. And I always confuse hubris and Hamasha. For this, I put that I think there's a preoccupation with wealth as like a mm-hmm. study because Nick is studying finance. Gatsby okay, has yeah. been desperately grabbing at an income for years and obviously has studied money in a way that allows him to get lots of it um and then there's tom is described as restless as though you know all of his possessions and wealth is just never enough like this doesn't fulfill him in the way that he wants it to um i know it's not necessarily like a a language or a philosophy but it is definitely a way of living in the world isn't it through yeah definitely i think that kind of worked into the aspect of hero worship 
Yeah. Because while there's not a, a tangible figure, it's that worship of that way of life. Worship yeah. of the social position that money gives you. Um, that need to attain that level. And yeah. kind of the way you will easily fall out of that society if you kind of get that wrong. Mm, I agree. Yeah, for hero worship, I mean, I suppose Gatsby's obsession with Daisy is probably the closest yeah. that we get to that element. Although I think to some extent Nick is also kind of hero worshipping Gatsby, especially towards the end. Oh, definitely. But it's, it kind of goes in a reverse, doesn't it, for, for a dark academia novel. It's not like obsession that kind of crumbles away as the reality kind of... Um, comes to light it's the other way yeah it's it as yeah as Gatsby remember spoiler warnings in these podcast episodes <laughs> when Gatsby dies that's when that's the most complimentary and the most Nick cares about Gatsby yeah throughout the novel when it's kind of too late I guess it's that putting him on a pedestal after death that the rose tinted glasses yeah I mean speaking of death um often in a dark academia novel you get some form of murder and in Gatsby we get uh again spoiler alerts if you haven't already (laughs) guessed it we are going to tell you everything that happens in this book um we get one accidental death one murder and one suicide Mm -hmm. um but I think interestingly we don't see the narrator as like a counterpart or someone who has a role in the deaths of those people. I think Nick, arguably, like, through his own poor judgment, sort of has Mm -hmm. a hand in it, but it's not like he has anything um, to gain or holds any particular grudge against these people enough to want them to meet their demise. Yeah, he's a bystander to it, isn't he? Yeah. He's, He's part of the... A witness. Isn't that a Greek element as well, actually? Or what did I just conjure that up out of nowhere? I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> Hello. Editing Sarah here again. I think actually what Sophie meant was the chorus. Um, the chorus was a device often used in Greek tragedy. And they were uh, a nondescript group of people or could be a person. And they act like a go-between between the action and the players on stage and the audience so they comment on what's happening without actually being actively involved themselves i've got to say though about the deaths particularly the accidental death of um myrtle wilson when she's hit by the car i had forgotten this but i was shocked by how like on page the description of her mutilated body was yeah and it was also very this is something we're going to touch on later but very kind of female directed violence in a way that we don't really see around anybody else yeah because they talk i don't even know if i want to say it they talk about her breasts like barely hanging on or barely being attached and it just felt really (laughs) sexually aggressive to me yeah really violent in a way that was not present on either of the other deaths 
Yeah, I think it's definitely gratuitous, and I don't, I don't see the benefit to having that on page. No, there wasn't any. I don't think it's a shock factor. I guess mm. not needed. Not needed. Well, from that cheery topic to a <laughs> dark, moody, and/or haunting vibe. It's not a book that you would ever think of as being dark and moody or haunting in a traditional sense. Like in the in the normal sense when we read these kind of like brooding dark academia titles, you instantly know it right away. Um, but I think the, the narrator in Nick, we get this kind of satinine temperament. Do you know what I mean? Like he's just yeah. very, he's not morose, but he's just and not cynical, but it's almost like almost that. I don't know how to explain yeah, it. I, I know what you mean. I think there is a, a haunting vibe as well. Like Gatsby clearly haunts Nick and Daisy and what he, what Gatsby has lost with Daisy, this life that he missed out on haunts Gatsby. And from the very beginning, like those opening words kind of set you up for doom, don't they? You know from that opening line that this isn't going to end happily. Another element that is prominent in Dark Academia titles is old money and how it collides with new money or no money. And that is definitely a huge one for Gatsby. Yeah, this book is just all money. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's basically a kind of touch point of Jazz Age novels, isn't it? Yeah. That influx of new money um, and also the recovery after the First World War and... The Depression and... Because the Great Depression's late 20s, isn't it? 28? I want to say. The Wall Street crash was in 28, I think. Yeah. Hello. Editing Sarah here again. Third time's the charm. I'd just like to point out that I had no clue which year the Wall Street crash was. And when Sophie said 1928, I said yes. And hope for the best. August 29. I was close. So Gatsby hits that sweet spot in between like the war uh, and the depression. Yeah. Yeah. So the people that have made the money off of the war are sitting pretty and the people that are lost did not. Yeah. I mean there's a there's a quote where Nick and Gatsby are talking about Daisy, especially her voice. Nick seems to be quite preoccupied with her voice. I think he mm. mentions quite often the sound of it. Yeah. Um, and Gatsby says, her voice is full of money, he said suddenly. That was it. I'd never understood before. It was full of money. That was the inexhaustible charm that rose and fell in it. The jingle of it. The symbol song of it. High in a white palace, the king's daughter, the golden girl. It's, I just, that's there's intense, a lot, isn't it? <laughs> there's a lot to unpack in that. I think, I mean, it says a lot about the differences between Daisy, who is old money and then mm -hmm. jay and nick who are i mean nick's technically old money but his family aren't as prominent as like daisy's yeah and he doesn't and have are. that much access to that money he's i mean his his life is being paid for by his dad but it's not like an account he has access to is no it? So. no no i think you just notice the difference don't you between those mm. being born and brought up with money and it is just their almost their whole personality yeah. Whereas those trying to grab at it or even pretend to be it. Mm. So I guess it does 
shape you because it is part of comes part of the society that you live in and your education so it is reflected in how you speak and what you say and things like that I think also I I really enjoy that description of a voice especially the jingle of it because it just makes me think of like a pocket full of change like that's just what she sounds (laughs) like yeah yeah it sounds quite annoying to me to be honest (laughs) (laughs) but doesn't um he also say later in the novel i think it's when they're at the plaza and it says something about like the the harsh kind of most graveliness of it when she's upset it's an odd book though because not a whole lot happens no it really doesn't a lot of what very short as well yeah and a lot of what you see on page is just um quite mundane really Mm. I guess it hinges on those relationships between the characters, doesn't it? Yeah. We get to talk about my favourite topic. The weather. We get to talk about the weather. And there (laughs) is weather in this book. I get really excited when it's weather. (laughs) The suffocating heat of a summer in New York. I mean, I've never experienced it. I don't really have a desire to. But the fact that people leave the city to get away from it speaks volumes to me like I I don't want any part of that thank you (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think that day where everything goes to shit Mm -hmm. I mean it's already hot as heck their judgments are being colored by that because I mean you know when you're hot like you're irritable you know Mm -hmm. you end up becoming quite selfish I think yeah it changes the way you think as well doesn't it like you can't you can't function in the same way. No. Because your body's desperately trying to keep you alive. Yeah. <laughs> we also get, do get rain. It rains something awful on the day that Daisy comes over to Nick's to meet Gatsby. It's oh, just yeah. hissing it down. Yeah, and you just get that sense, I think, that there's, there is a storm coming. The storm's arrived, but like the storm, there's a storm coming. Mm. You know, this is like a turning point. Of the novel, isn't it? Yeah. I do think it's interesting that that kind of like... The break then happens under suffocating heat rather than a physical storm. That's a a very different choice to normal... Like the standard dark academia. Yeah. Use of weather. It's it's very different, but it has an equally strong impact, I think. Yeah. Because it feels claustrophobic sometimes, especially in that hotel room in the plaza. Yeah. It feels cloying and kind of charged. Yeah, and I think it's, the weather is mostly... I mean, it's unremar- It's not even remarked upon other than on those days of contention, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting too. Yeah, it's used very cleverly. Yeah. The final tenet of Dark Academia novels that we want to look at is underdeveloped social skills or the protagonist being portrayed as an outsider ding 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 we have have a winner (laughs) yeah we have two big outsiders Gatsby and Nick so as I've mentioned before Gatsby literally hides at his own parties like he doesn't necessarily invite people they just turn up he's like no thanks and he goes to hide but he still takes delight in the fact in his parties it's a <laughs> very obvious social awkwardness there yeah 
I mean, he's just throwing these parties on the hope that Daisy will visit one day. Yeah, yeah, that's That's why there's an open invitation for everyone. Mm. Yeah, that is true. I think he probably gets a kick out of it as well. Like, he's got the money to do this. And he goes all out every time. Like, it's a show-off moment as well, isn't it? It is. I think part of the reason, though, for him to hide away is it, it gives less opportunity for that bubble to burst like they can Mm. come up with all the kind of rumors they want about him but they'll never learn the actual truth if the man himself is never there yeah true and i guess that that builds the legend around him doesn't it as well yeah but complete opposite to nick really (laughs) yeah poor nick squashed in a small cottage between the grander mansions along the shore like he's just an oversight but that makes him the perfect person to be the fly on the wall type character. Mm-hmm. Like he's so unoffensive that he just kind of well. gets. <laughs> <laughs> I meant like as a in his social standing. Do you know yeah, what I yeah. mean? Like his... <laughs> his position in the novel. Yeah, is so unoffensive that he can just get carried along by these bigger characters mm. and just kind of observe everything that's happening. No, 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 the character himself is rather <laughs> offensive. <laughs> and he is shockingly like Richard yes. from The Secret History, which is interesting because I'm pretty sure in The Secret History, Richard actually compares himself. I did save it. Oh, I knew I'd need this. <laughs> so the, the Great Gatsby is Richard Papen's favourite book and he rereads it early on in The Secret History. And he, and he says in the book he, that he finds certain tragic similarities between Gatsby and myself. He compares Which himself is... to Gatsby. Like, of all car- I, yeah. He's a Nick all over. He is not a Gatsby. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is really irritating. Not that irritating. is irritating. It is irritating. It is irritating. <laughs> because he's, he's putting himself as the tragic hero, the star of the show, when he is... He is an observer. He's a vehicle for the story. Yeah. Which is interesting. I mean, it makes his obsession with Camilla a lot more, um, make a lot more sense if he sees himself as a Gatsby character. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Because I I could see Camilla as Daisy, actually. That's a... Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, because there's this great quote about, like, how Nick sees himself. Because Nick is very aware that he is the Richard. You know, he knows that he is watching this all unfold. And he says, I was privy to the secret griefs of wild, unknown men. Most of the confidences were unsought. Frequently I have feigned sleep, preoccupation or a hostile levity when I realised by some unmistakable sign that an intimate revelation was quivering on the horizon. (laughs) So this isn't a position he wants. He's very aware of it, but he doesn't want that. He wants to be Gatsby, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. He does. Very obviously. <laughs> but then Richard wants to be Henry in a lot of ways. Yeah. So. But Gatsby mm. would never want to be Nick. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh, I love an, a tangle. An intertextuality oh, it... tangle. An entanglement. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's really interesting as well that F. Scott Fitzgerald was also an outsider. I read this really interesting article with 
it's actually like a, a transcript of um, a radio interview with um, an author who wrote about Gatsby. Her name's Maureen Corrigan. And she wrote a lot about F. Scott Fitzgerald and like his biography and things as well as the novel itself. And I'd never really thought about it this way, but she highlights him as an outsider too because he never achieved the literary stardom that he was expected to. He slid into alcoholism. His wife was institutionalised for most of her life, Zelda Fitzgerald. Um, he was even denied a Catholic burial because his novels were deemed too risque. Wow. It actually took Fitzgerald's daughter, Scotty, actually had them reburied together. And apparently on their on their slab it has the final lines from Gatsby. Oh. Which is quite sad and depressing because they're not yeah. hopeful lines. They're but... not, but <laughs> Well. It's a very cool tidbit, I think. <laughs> it's very much a well look at me now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because <laughs> obviously he died in nineteen forty. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, so he never saw his career take off. I think Zelda saw it because she died in 48, I believe. So I think he was starting to get recognition as she died. Mm. They were both super, super young, doomed, kind of doomed characters in their own right, really. I think we're pretty united in the two big criticisms of The Great Gatsby, aren't we? We are. The representation of women and the racism. Aye, aye. Right. So even if there is other stuff, these were too big and glaring to kind of to kind of look around, really. Yeah. <laughs> because there is not a single likeable or empathetic character in the novel. And yet the women are still treated even more harshly than the men. <laughs> yeah, they don't get a good treatment. They're not portrayed in a great way at all. No. I mean, you can chalk it up some of it being because it's a book of its time but there are also mm. plenty of books written at that time and also before then that still manage to be respectful about the women that it portrays exactly while also being truthful to the limitations too but yeah, yeah. but usually those empathetic books are written by women so this is very true yeah and he didn't have I actually haven't read any of his, his other novels but I just have this impression that he didn't have a great rep with treatment of women i don't know whether that's because he was part of like the gang of like ernest hemingway who was notoriously horrific towards yeah. women but that um that transcript i just mentioned um maureen corrigan actually says in fact that's one of the reasons why fitzgerald thought it didn't sell well in 1925 because there were no likable female characters and women drive the fiction market that's very that's astute yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, she might be onto something, he might be onto something there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he does have a very blinkered perspective. And I think it, it's not just that it upholds those patriarchal elements of society in the 1920s. It kind of reinforces and double downs on it. And I think that's mm. where the problem is. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think you were saying that it's it's kind of a weird time for women. Yeah, 
it is an odd time because they're starting to see um, more freedoms. Like they have more opportunity to do more things independently from like their household or from their husband. And yet they're still required to be those kind of like uh, maternal figures and have be very wifey. Yeah. But also you can sort of dabble in this, but I don't know. It's just a very strange, strange, strange time to be a woman, I think. Yeah, because you could be a socialite. Yeah. You could go to the parties and everything, but you had to be beautiful. You had to be charming. You had to have the good conversation skills. And the idea of that was still to snare a husband, wasn't it? Yeah. Could, I mean, could they yeah. Vote? Yeah. The women in Gatsby are just, they're utterly ridiculous in the way he describes them. I mean, Jordan Baker, the way she's described as sitting, like she's what she's balancing yeah. something. And, you know, it, it's almost like the women are constantly in like a kind of tableau for men to look upon, to maybe yeah. remark upon, but they're not important enough to be actually part of the main action. Yeah. She's always like laying or like draped across a sofa, isn't she? Yes. <laughs> like she doesn't ever have a, a conversation standing up or sitting up. She's always laying across a sofa. Yeah. She's a strange character. She is because she also, Jordan Baker, we see her as this very odd, like you said, sitting, lying draped over something but also she's one of those women that have the peculiar freedom in the sense that she's like a golf champion yeah and she is a, a, applauded for that and celebrated for that but she's still still somehow a second-class citizen mm. yeah and she gets the way she gets brushed off by nick <sighs> brutal 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 I'm so glad she pulls it, pulls him up on it at the end of the novel. Yeah. But I hate the way that he gets the final word. I know. Yeah, he's <laughs> very really annoys get, He gets called out on his bullshit, but... There's no consequence yeah. to it. No. <laughs> he just carries on. Yeah. It's the way he also he talks about a girl that he's supposedly promised to or engaged with back home. And he's like, oh, I probably should write to her at some point and call it off. And that's literally all we hear about that. Yeah. It's just a passing comment. <laughs> <laughs> Should probably do something about that. I yeah. might next week. But again, I wonder if that's part of the thing, like it's not his story. He's telling he's telling Gatsby and Daisy and Tom's yeah. and the Wilson's story. It's he is watching it. Like his his life is almost it's it's a sideline, isn't it, to the Yeah. To the actual goings on in the novel. He's just there. So the other big thing is the racism in the novel. Mm. And this largely comes from Tom. Yeah, Tom is awful. Yeah, he is shocking. But the even though the rest of the characters aren't outwardly or verbally racist, they they let it slide. They don't pick him up on it. They don't. No. Even internally, Nick never goes, you know, oh, not cool, man. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's just, it's let go because he's this big scary man. Yeah. I mean, he's essentially spewing, he's um, just like raving on and on about white supremacy. And yeah. no one in that room goes, um, 
don't know about that. They just yeah. they they almost like brush it off as like, um, oh, he's been very eccentric, mm. but it's not questioned as maybe you shouldn't have that perspective. Yeah, definitely. And I think I do wonder if it's a heavy-handed way of Fitzgerald kind of isolating Tom as a villain. Mm. Because Gatsby sees Tom as what's standing in between his happiness with Daisy. Yeah. And obviously Nick hates him as well because he's hateful. (laughs) Yes. So, but it, it is a very obvious kind of setting up of Tom as the villain, I think. Yeah. In a really unpleasant and gross way. Yeah. I think it... It would have actually been more effective if the other characters had called him out. That would have planted him even further. Yeah, because he would have he would have just gone even harder Kicked with off. it. I think. Yeah, gross, gross man. <laughs> <laughs> I just I can't I can I just can't shake the image of him in these like riding breeches and like riding <laughs> boots and a silk. Sh- I don't know. It's just I see. Him just stood on his little veranda bit, and it's just gross, just like a like a muscled sausage stuffed into a <laughs> into his clothes. I can't. That's all I see. Thank you for that image. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I remember when I I read it the first time, I was convinced that it was going to be him that that got off at the end. I was mm. con- utterly convinced, and, yeah. it, and it's not. I think that would have made sense in a Dark Academia sense as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Obviously, Gatsby dying follows the pattern. Um, obviously, like, you know, he's the Henry. Yeah. But, yeah, for a very short book where not much happens, a lot of people do die. They do. Shall we talk about old Nick? No, I want to talk about the car first. Oh, okay. <laughs> Please go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking about like isolated elements or like little symbols or something in the book that uh, I wanted to talk about. And the obvious one is obviously the green light. Mm-hmm. Everyone talks about the green light. So I was like, let's yeah. not talk about the green light. I want to talk about the car. Mm. I think the car is a very powerful and symbolic element. Um, Gatsby's automobile is stupid. Let's face it. The <laughs> thing is stupid. It's big and flashy, obscene. It's a token of like status and control. Yeah. And then, but what you get is when Tom insists on driving it, it's clear where the power is shifting, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, true. So it's almost like Tom putting Gatsby in his place. Like, no, I will drive this car because I'm the person, you know, like, I'm, this is my rightful place. Yeah. Um, it's a very stereotypically masculine kind of <laughs> yeah pissing contest, isn't it? It is, but there are also consequences for that kind of posturing and extravagance. So this kind of like reaching that all of the men have in this book ends in tragedy for anyone who's been at the wheel of that car, mm-hmm. essentially. So Tom loses his mistress, Myrtle, and Mr. Wilson loses his wife. Daisy loses Gatsby. Gatsby loses both Daisy and his life. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the ongoing deal between Tom and Mr. Wilson to sell his coupe. So it's 
it's almost like he wants to offer an exchange of goods. Like I'm gonna, I do you know it, it <laughs> from from the look on your face and what you're doing with your hands, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I also thought it was interesting that both Jordan Baker and Daisy are both terrible drivers. Mm. It's, I mean, of, of course they are because that's the stereotype that's been around for yeah. as long as automobiles have been around. That cars offer women these kind, the kind of freedom that they've never had before. Yeah. And that's scary for men. So of course they're bad at driving because women shouldn't be in charge of their own destiny. It's dangerous. Exactly. Someone will get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't be less <laughs> obvious, could it, in what he's doing with that? Like, No. <laughs> dude. <laughs> I think it would be interesting, actually, because this is Fitzgerald's third novel and he has six. I think it would be interesting to see if his attitude towards women changes as his relationship with Zelda changes. Yeah, that would be interesting, actually. As he was writing Gatsby, I think this is when Zelda first went to sanatorium or at least hospital. Yeah. In some way. So I do wonder how much of like that is influenced. Mm. And there's also a lot of rumours about Zelda's involvement with the writing of the books. Mm, that's interesting. There are lots of like bylines and kind of tidbits, and there's even I can't remember where I read it. I can't. I don't know how true this is, but there's one of Fitzgerald's novels where Z- Zelda is reported to say that was list- lifted straight from one of my diaries. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> In the classic case of a husband taking all of the credit for the woman's work, <laughs> which is interesting. So I think that that would be potentially enlightening. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. <laughs> Now that we've talked about my vroom vrooms for a little bit, we can now talk about Nick Carraway, if you wish. <laughs> cool. So I think we've both said, like, Nick has that same simmering internal kind of gut reaction of being violent or creepy towards women mm. that Richard does in The Secret History. Yeah. And this is definitely not something I picked up on when I last read it. Which was probably, I don't know, 10 years ago. I think I read yeah. it at university. Yeah, I think the biggest red flag is when he imagines himself following women home through the city. Mm-hmm. And to their apartments. Yeah, right to their apartments where they'll yeah. turn and wave or smile. Like, no, that's that's just strange. Yeah. And then with the way that he describes Myrtle Wilson mm. upon her death. And even just the physical way he describes the characters. Yeah. It's very salacious almost. Mm. And it's absolutely creepy. Because he focuses so much on like their shape and just leery, leery stuff. That no, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> it's, it's that kind of sexual objectifying that seems to be... A concurrent thread through all of dark academia novels. <laughs> Except me, madam. What I put about the first thing I wrote about Nick Carraway is he's he's what, thirty and still a bit of a drifter. I know obviously there's been the war in the middle of like their um twenties, like but yeah. it just there's just a sense of like restless apathy for him. 
I've always feel like he doesn't seem to experience like a varied range of emotions. He's quite okay, yeah, quite not flat, but he doesn't seem to swing wildly into like anger or passion or it all seems to be very um almost monotone for him. He almost kind of he almost takes on the feelings from other characters mm. and inserts himself into that situation rather than having his own opinion on it. Yeah. And then even when he does, I think there's quite early on when he gets angry at Gatsby, doesn't he? Because um, Gatsby wants him to meet him for lunch with someone but won't tell him why. He gets angry, but he doesn't actually do anything about that anger. He just throws a mild strop and goes along with it anyway. <laughs> yeah. There's, he doesn't have any agency, basically, no, I think. that's true. And I think that probably fits into his role as, like, the observer, doesn't it? Yeah. He's not a particularly reliable narrator. Oh, that's no. That's for sure. Definitely not. And I think that becomes really obvious by the end. Yeah. With his kind of, after Gatsby's death, death when he's suddenly, like, horrified that no one would come to Gatsby's funeral. When at the beginning of the novel, I don't think Nick would have gone to his funeral. No. You know? And he doesn't like him any more than he does at the end of the novel. He's just taken on this role of the person who is looking after, like, Gatsby's funeral and estate and everything and contacting people. He's taken on that role, so he's adopted the feelings that he thinks he should have. Yeah. I feel like there's a word for that. (laughs) I feel like there's a literary term, but I can't think of what it is. So... We'll move on to Daisy. <laughs> yes. Daisy, Daisy, Daisy. Daisy Buchanan. Yeah, I think the first thing I wrote was that she does remind me of Camilla um, from The Secret History in the sense that she can't seem to do any wrong in the eyes of the men around her. Like She yeah. still does things, but... So many. <laughs> <laughs> she plays the game and plays it well, and I don't she think does. we can blame her for that. <laughs> Absolutely, and I think that as well ties into kind of her famous quote. Of course, I only saved two words of it as if I could remember it. Please. <laughs> Daisy speaks early on in the novel about her daughter, and she says, I hope she'll be a fool. That's the best thing a girl can be in this world, a beautiful little fool. One of the most famous quotes in literature. Hmm. And I don't... I guess it never really occurred to me before, but this isn't Daisy being stupid or airy. I think it's actually quite sad because she wants her daughter to be protected against the horrors of being a woman and being a woman in this trapped period of time that we've already spoken about, being beautiful and clever and innocent is her best defence. And her best chance at security and kind of building the, catching the man that will provide the life for her. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's it's actually really sad rather than a bit kind of airy-fairy. Yeah. I mean, I, I always find that she's a bit of a Kathy from Wuthering Heights kind of character. Like, she's not particularly likeable, but she makes the choices she needs to make to survive yeah yeah definitely and i think in in that time in that situation 
those choices are so limited. Yeah. Like, they're not going to be good choices. <laughs> like, no, that you're exactly. Left with. You can't and just you hang, to... on, hang on in hopes that that charming uh, lieutenant comes back to marry you. Like, yeah. It's, it's her Charlotte Lucas moment, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Charlotte Lucas. 27. <laughs> I'm a burden to my family. <sighs> Poor Charlotte. But Poor it is Charlotte. that it is that idea, isn't it? It's Yeah, I mean it's it's Kathy marrying Ujima Flip down the road because he's got I can't think what his name is now. Nah, he's got like, I don't know. But he's got a it's house a and <laughs> money and and then Heathcliff turns back up and goes, Yeah, I've got money and she's like, That's nice. I'm married now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <clears throat> a little too late. Yeah. I think interestingly, apparently that beautiful fool thing is inspired by Zelda's reaction to her daughter's oh. birth because Zelda was, you know, a rich socialite, very much in Daisy's social situation and social position. Um, I just think I don't have much written down for Jimmy Gats, Jay Gatsby, apart from he is an interesting character study, just from the sense of how he has created himself and upheld that like the whole myth of Jay Gatsby Um, and I think as well we're never really sure of his true intentions or like his true motivations really I know he is obsessed with Daisy but what does he really want from her yeah Um, and what would he do if he got her like exactly that's been his life's purpose. Yeah, he. I mean, he. He says of Daisy when they were courting back, where when before she was married, obviously, and he says it excited him too that many men had already loved Daisy. It increased her value in his eyes. That's gross. Yeah, just because she was a desired object by many men, he was like, "That's the one for me." That's very madam, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ew. He describes yeah. her as she was the first nice girl he had ever known. I mean, what does that even mean? Nice girl, rich? Yeah, or like one that paid attention to him. <laughs> like, it's such a wishy-washy word, isn't it? Oh, nice. that was some good alliteration there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't really have any like, genuine foundation for why he loves Daisy so much. No. I always, he just I, does, and that's fact. The thing about about Gatsby, though, is he gets me every time. Like, I am charmed by him every time. Yep. Same. I sympathise. I feel sad. I'm heartbroken that he dies at the end. But also, when you try and... When you think about what might have happened... What might you you can't know, and this is why when I was writing the um the intro, you know, it makes you wonder at the lengths men might go when when given the green light. Like, how far was he willing to go to get Daisy? Because yeah. I mean, he wasn't subtle about it, was he? No, no. <laughs> he was he was willing to take his shot, regardless of the consequences. Yeah. Even if like that snowballed into the consequence being his life, he's a very complicated character. Yeah. I think it's a huge revelation as well when you find out that Jay Gatsby isn't actually his name. 
kind of immediately kind of undoes everything you've built up about Gatsby in your head, doesn't it? Yeah. But we don't see that reflected in Nick at all. Nick doesn't seem to react. No. I mean, like I said, I think everything that he said, though, there is like a thread of truth in it. Like he hasn't, he doesn't full on lie. He just embellishes it in a way that mm. makes it sound better. So it is still hit, like Jay Gatsby isn't that far from J- Jimmy Gats. It's just more flowery. It's more acceptable yeah. to like high society. He did go to Oxford for a little bit. He wasn't lying. <laughs> yeah, he just he didn't did... actually study at Oxford. No. <laughs> And he did make his money in the pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. It's lying by mission, isn't it, really? Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts on The Great Gatsby? I think I still really, really like it as a novel. Because I first... I've only read it... This is only the second time I've read it. I first read it um, when I was at university. So rather disgustingly, about 10 years ago. Um <laughs> And I remembered absolutely adoring it. And I still really enjoyed it. I think, you know, having studied a lot since then and being much more aware of my own leanings on, like, feminism and stuff, that jumped out at me in a way that made me like it a little bit less, maybe. But it is still, it's such an interesting novel to look at. There's so much there. It's so rich. Even though it's, what, 180 pages, 190 pages? Yeah. And nothing much really happens. That <laughs> there's so much there. And it is beautifully written. It is. It is. So it is still a thumbs up from me. Yeah. And I really enjoyed comparing it to the Dark Academia tenets because it's not an obvious choice. It's not something you'd go, Oh yeah, I can see the connections between that and the secret mm. history. We said that to just a Someone who's just read the secret history and been there, what? <laughs> you know, because everyone knows the Gatsby story, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's only my second time reading it. Again, I read it at university, which was a disgusting amount of time ago now. Um, <laughs> and I used it heavily in my final dissertation. But my reading of it this time is completely different than it was the first time. Um. And I gave it five stars then. And I probably still would give it five stars, but for different reasons. Okay. So I looked back. I gave it four stars back in 2011. And I would give it four stars now again. Mm. But again, differently. Yeah. It is a great novel. Whether it's a great American novel, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) That's a big question for another day. (laughs) Right. Would you like to uh, announce to the people what we've got coming up next time? So next time we will be looking at Ace of Spades by Farida Abike Ayamidi. Welcome to Nivea's Private Academy, where money paves the hallways and the students are never less than perfect. Until now. Because anonymous texter Aces is bringing two students' dark secrets to light. Talented musician Devon buries himself in rehearsals but he can't escape the spotlight when his private photos go public. Head girl Chiamaka isn't afraid to get what she wants, but soon everyone will know the price she has paid for power. Someone is out to get them both, someone who holds all the aces, and they're planning much more than a high school game. (laughs) So excited for that. I think it's going to be really good fun.
Yeah. So this is a dark academia YA thriller. Yes. Set in a boarding school. So yes. ticking some boxes already. <laughs> Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed talking about The Great Gatsby with us and we hope you'll join us next time. Bye. Bye.